The VHS currently has on display a stunning exhibition of photographs from the greatest war in human history. Here are photos of Hitler and Mussolini at their peak, Londoners during the Blitz, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943, Allied leaders at Tehran, GIs in Normandy, and Marines on the Black Sands of Iwo Jima. Organized from the archives of the Associated Press, this exhibition presents a spectrum of 120 plus of the most dramatic photographs from all theaters of the war and the home front. Today, our speaker will not only survey the most important of these images, but also share with us images not in the exhibition. I can think of no one more qualified to deliver this lecture than retired General John W. Mountcastle, known to all of his friends here at the Society and probably many of you in this room throughout Richmond as Jack. He's a native Richmonder and a 1965 graduate of VMI. He began serving as an Army officer in 1966 and commanded tank units at all levels, from platoon through armored brigade. Now, while on active duty, Jack earned a master's and a PhD in history from Duke University and taught military history at West Point. Promoted to Brigadier General in 1994, he assumed the duties of the Army's Chief of Military History in Washington. And currently, Jack teaches Civil War history courses at the University of Richmond. He has also served as the featured historian accompanying several VHS tours and has previously conducted three of our CU in class lectures. In fact, this fall he will be offering a two-part class here on George C. Marshall. So I know because so many of you are in the crowd know Jack already, you know you're in for a treat. And Jack, for all you do for the VHS, thank you so much and please help me welcome to the stage General Jack Mountcastle. What a pleasure to be here. And uh, for everyone that uh, came out on a kind of a steamy day, thank you for making the effort. This is great. Uh, you know, when, uh, when Paul uh, Nelson Langford and I talked about the excitement that was being generated by this marvelous exhibit, uh, which has actually been traveling around the country now since 2005, um, we were thinking maybe there's a way at, uh, at a banner lecture time to try to put some of these photos, these images, into a historical context that we can all sort of get our arms around. And so um, I quickly volunteered to do that. And I said, but will you let me pick the pictures? You know, it's kind of hard because there's 126 in the exhibit and I'm not going to show 126 pictures. If you want to see all 126, you've got to get to the exhibit hall, and you've got a week left to go before it moves on, heading for Vermont next, I think, Northfield. Um, and they said, that's okay. Let's just talk about some of them. And then we're going to save some time so that we can go to you for your comments, uh, or perhaps if you have a question or two, then we can all enjoy working that over. You know, out of all the pictures, <laughs> all of them in the exhibit, I, I selected this one. Um, First, because it's recognizable, that's the Arc de Triomphe. Um, but even as much as the Arc de Triomphe is a symbol of France and of Paris, the city of lights, these GIs are a symbol of America in the 20th century. There are older brothers, there are fathers, there are uncles, our granddads, they are America. And here they are, four days after Paris is captured by French and American forces, marching down the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> a week earlier, they'd been fighting through the hedgerows in the Bocage country of France when they got the order, okay, you're going to be relieved. Another outfit's coming up from the Normandy beachhead. We're going to get you, get into camp here, shave, get cleaned up, clean your weapons, brush off your boots. You're going on a parade. A parade? Yeah, a parade. And uh, so here they are on the 29th of August, parading through Paris. 28th Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, red keystone patch on their shoulder sleeves. Look at them. My gosh, if you go in the exhibit, you get right down and look in their faces. You know, it's a, it's a mission. Okay, yeah, we'll go do a parade, and then we're out of here. 
Uh, and that's what they did. They marched right on through Paris. They marched out the other side. They got in a deuce and a half trucks, a two and a half tons. They went to attack positions, and he went right back into combat. Five weeks later, they'd stopped calling their shoulder sleeve insignia the Keystone. They'd have a new name for it because they were fed into the Hurtgen Forest. And a half of these young men didn't make it. The 28th Division began to call their patch the Bloody Bucket, bright red. They are, they were, they will always be America. Now, speaking of marching, there was a lot of marching going on in Europe. Historically, there's been lots of parades. But in the 30s, the, the, the footsteps, the boot steps frequently took on a somewhat sinister air. We began reading about the resurgence of militarism in Germany, specifically the brand directed by the new chancellor, now chancellor, prime minister, all rolled into one. Simple title, Der Führer. Here's a picture of some of Der Führer's uh, stormtroopers parading through the old part of downtown Nuremberg, northern Bavaria. Perfectly aligned, uniforms, maybe a little spiffier than the 28th Division, because after all, Der Führer was going to be reviewing the troops. And from every window, the people of Nuremberg were waving. And as they turned the corner and broke into the goose step to pass the reviewing stand, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, roared from the crowd. They had a lot of these parades. But the other picture juxtaposed to the parading troops is these little children. This is in 1938. They're... They're wearing gas masks. Their teachers are too. This is a photo released by the, uh, the Reich's Minister for Information, in essence saying, all you other countries in Europe just want to make you sure that you're aware that we're very serious about our rights and we're going to get some more living space because we really need it. We need that Lebensraum. Well, the place that they were going to reach for Lebensraum was just to the east, 1st of September, 1939, uh, they unleashed the German forces on neighboring Poland. And we read about it here in Richmond, in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. That was the basic source of our news. Of course, there was the news leader in the afternoon, but if you want to catch your morning news, you walked out and you picked your paper up, you'd heard it hit the screen door when the Kid went by on his bike at 4.30 and threw it up on your porch. Sometimes he hit the porch, sometimes it's in the bushes, but it was out there. And you open it up and you read. Allies expected to declare war. That surprised Der Fuhrer a bit because he didn't really think that Great Britain and France would honor their treaty obligations to little old Poland. I mean, after all, Poland had just been created in 1919, Treaty of Versailles, but they did. They did. Here's a picture of Hitler with uh, some people there in Poland that uh, are crying at the moment. And you would think, well, they're, they're crying because they've been forced to meet Adolf Hitler. Actually, actually, th these were German-speaking Poles. They were really quite happy to see the Germans move in. Complex time, wasn't it? Because no sooner had Germany moved into Western Poland than the Soviet Union, directed by Joseph Stalin, moved into eastern Poland. Poland basically was going to be occupied by, by two dictatorial forces, Germany in the west, USSR in the east. Then followed six months of what people began to call a phony war. I mean, there's nothing going on. And the British expeditionary force had arrived there in, in uh, Belgium and, and, and moved up side by side with the French forces who were going to defend France and a small little Belgian army who had a series of forts along some canals like the Albert Canal. And people said, well, maybe we can negotiate our way out of this thing. But then in May, Hitler unleashed the Blitzkrieg, the lightning war. And it didn't take very long. It was only about six weeks. Uh, they, they crashed through Norway. 
You see the, uh, the German soldiers racing through Norway. These AP photographs are, they're really telling. The one on the left, uh, lower left, this Frenchman, um, just absolutely, totally distraught. What he's watching is French regiments furling their colors, casing their colors, slipping them out of France so that they won't be captured by the Germans, sending them off to Algeria, to the French colonies there. Heartbreaking. He's about of an age where he could have easily been a Poilu fighting in the trenches in World War I. And it wasn't very long, June, before there's another parade down the Champs-Élysées, this time by Germans, carefully turned out, I can assure you, in proper parade kit, to demonstrate after the fall of Paris and the negotiated peace with France, that they basically now controlled all of Western Europe, if not by absolute conquest, then through treaties with people like uh, Generalissimo Franco in Spain. They were in charge. The only, the only people still fighting against them were the Brits, those pesky Brits. Hmm. Got a new prime minister now, Winston Churchill. Always making speeches, you know, we fight them on the beaches, we fight them on the land grounds, fight them in the cities, we will never, never give up, never surrender. Hitler says, well, let's go after Britain. But the German Navy was not in a position to challenge the Royal Navy in the narrow seas, the, the uh, English Channel. Never mind, says Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, he says, we can bomb those Brits into submission. Leave it up to me. It didn't work. They started bombing cities. It just made the British even angrier. And then they actually dropped a bomb on Buckingham Palace. And here you see the king and queen of England inspecting damage. Luckily, no one in Buckingham Palace was injured. But you know, in an odd sort of way, the fact that the palace itself was bombed help British resolve. After all, if you're going to bomb our royal residence, the fact that down here in the working class neighborhoods along the Thames, we're getting bombed out of our homes too, having to go down into the tube to sleep at night to avoid the nightly raids, well, we're all in this together. St. Paul's Cathedral, the dome outlined by fires all around it, survived as a symbol of British determination. We will fight on. And as 1940 turned into 41 and Hitler began to look in other directions, principally to the east the next time, more and more Americans came to realize that, well, sooner or later, probably sooner rather than later, we're actually going to get involved in this. And so in singles and pairs and groups and teams, they started going down on their own, saying, okay, I'm here. Oh, by the way, what encouraged people to enlist was the fact that given a, a state of limited national emergency, a peacetime draft was established in 1941. And many National Guard units, like our own um, magnificent 29th Division, the Blue and Gray, Virginia, Maryland, National Guard were called active duty. And so we had National Guardsmen up at Fort Meade in Maryland getting re-equipped, getting trained as best they could with uh, you know, stovepipes for mortars and, and old trucks for tanks, but they're getting there. And they're getting on a, a mentality. And even in places like Hollywood, you're gonna see fantastic stars. <laughs> Here's a man that just won an Oscar the previous year, and he's enlisting. And it took him three tries. He was too skinny to get in. <laughs> he had to go to Universal Studios and get with a bodybuilder and say, help me bulk up a little bit. They, they say I'm, I'm, I'm too tall or I'm too thin. I, I can't get any shorter. Make me bigger. And so Jimmy Stewart is, uh, is in the Army, and he goes to OCS, and he's going to be commissioned. And he begins what is, in essence, a love affair with flight, that had preceded his service and would continue all the way through the Vietnam War. He finally retires as an Air Force Reserve Brigadier General and he flies many, many missions. 
over uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. Wins two distinguished flying crosses. He, it's not a publicity stunt. He's a real live, actual combat aviator. Uh, I've just listed, just for fun, some of the people who are already famous who decided that their, their place was in uniform. And a long list, too, of those that weren't really famous, <laughs> but post-war could look back on their service and say, yep, I, I was there. I was there. And so I think that in that particular time and place in our history, there was a, a realization that individuals grouping together could make things happen for good. And so that movement was already in effect when that fateful Sunday came on the 7th of December in 1941. Afternoon here on the East Coast, people listening on the radio to, to football games when the announcer broke in to announce that forces of the uh, Empire of Japan had just attacked Pearl Harbor. Now, this particular photo, which is one of the iconic photos of World War II, shows the, the uh, United States ship, the USS uh, Shaw, exploding at Pearl Harbor. You would think from the size of that there was nothing left of the Shaw, but <laughs> American ingenuity, you know, you, you can't count us out. There was enough left of the fantail so that they, they towed it to the West Coast, they put on a new front, and the Shaw went back to war. Along with a lot of the ships that would, were picked up out of the mud on, the, uh, uh, on uh, Pearl Harbor and brought back to play an important role in World War II. Of course, as we all know, um, some never came back. If you want to visit a place that will make you sad and proud at the same time, then you must go to visit the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, because it's still there, along with the thousand men that went down with her. But that, that signaled the end of peace for us. A new reality dawned for Americans of all sorts everywhere. Within uh, 48 hours, we had declared war on, on Japan. And then Adolf Hitler declared war on us. So right back at you, Adolf, we're declaring war on Germany and their, their junior partners, Italy. And so it's a worldwide war, yeah, around the globe. Americans will be fighting around the globe. And as Paul points out, 16 million Americans will have an experience that they probably never would have had, you know, working at the hardware store or pumping gas or on the farm. They'll go places they'd never dreamed of, never heard of. Uh, the next six months were tough for the American people. Nothing but, really, nothing but bad news. Once again, uh, the, uh, the Times-Dispatch played a key role in bringing the word. Even though it wasn't pleasant, it was there. And uh, April 1942, yeah, uh, Bataan surrenders. And so we see that man's ability for cruelty to their fellow man really knows no bounds. These pictures were smuggled out of the Philippines, the long march, 100 miles, from Bataan to a place called Camp O'Donnell, where most of the surrendered Filipino and American troops, both soldiers, airmen, and Marines, would be collected. Well, we know that thousands died in the Bataan Death March. And in the United States, word of this atrocity began to build a very, very deep-seated anger. Back in May, we had a marvelous uh, talk here uh, by uh, uh, Michael and Elizabeth Norman, who co-authored a book called Tears in the Darkness about the Bataan Death March. And even though many of us have read about it, uh, if you haven't read that book, you, you really haven't gotten uh, the full extent of just how difficult that, that whole thing was. So Americans everywhere seeing pictures like this one, they said, we've got to do something about this. We can't let this stand. And so first it was shock, and, and, and then it was a little fear, and then it was rage. 
And then a clear determination that as we girded for war, there could be a danger right here in our homeland, and especially on the Pacific Coast. This fear of fifth columnists, of people whose true loyalty lay not with the United States, but with their home country, was vented through a program of relocation. And tens of thousands of Japanese Americans were uprooted from their homes and businesses and were transported far from the coast with all of the military installations along the Pacific coast, deep inland to what were called relocation centers. They were, in effect, concentration camps because there were American soldiers guarding the perimeter. You couldn't leave. You couldn't leave. Uh, this picture from our uh, exhibit here of the Japanese families, basically two bags per person. You had a business, try and find someone to manage it for you or, or sell it. And as, as the Japanese population of the uh, West Coast was moved inland, at the same time, America put on its sword and buckler, and we went on a full wartime footing. Men went into the military, their places in factories, in shipyards, on the railroads, um, on the farm, in the stores were taken by women who said, I can do it. Rosie the Riveter became a symbol for what American womanhood could and did accomplish. And these pictures all from the exhibit show women inspecting nose cones off of uh, medium bombers. We've got these guys in their underwear lined up there. They're not going to need their uh, zoot suits anymore uh, because uh, Uncle Sam's going to give them a nice set of uh, uh, clothes to wear. It's not a great photo. In fact, I think I purposely overexposed it. It was fairly graphic. I didn't want to excite the audience here. Uh, and then this one here on the right. Uh, worry about the telephone exchanges. They'll bomb Pearl Harbor. They might bomb, bomb the San Francisco telephone building next. So lots of sandbags went up. And as I walked with Paul uh, Levengood through his excellent gallery walk in the exhibit here a month or so back, he pointed out, let me see if I can highlight this. T. Iwata and Company. There's a Japanese-owned business. This is shortly after the, uh, the attacks, uh, initial attacks in the Pacific. Mr. Iwata, I'm sure, lost his business because he was sent inland. But we went on a wartime footing. Now, you can, you can fight and you can train and you can work all the time, but you've got to have a little time out for a little bit of recreation. The USO, bless their hearts, they understood this. The next picture is of a dance in New York City by the New York USO troops coming in from nearby Camp Dix, New Jersey. And the USO to make sure that every soldier got at least one dance, even if he had two left feet. I got in the army with two left feet, I don't know. But anyway, the, the poor ladies that got their feet stepped all over at the dance would understand that. Uh, but they would invite twice as many young ladies to these dances as they expected to have soldiers. So here's a USO dance in, uh, in New York in 1942. Just as a side note, the United States Army was still a segregated institution in World War II. And it would remain that way until President Truman's executive order of 1948, integrating the armed services and beyond. Wouldn't really get integrated until the press of the Korean War made it so. But they're having a little moment where they can forget about the uh, maximum sustained rate of fire of the model 1919 A4 air-cooled machine gun and just dance. While stateside we're gearing up for war, the, the pre-war strategic talks had already directed which way we're going to fight. Here's a picture taken by Army photographer of our president and Prime Minister Churchill at Casablanca in Morocco in early 43. And they've got their military chiefs right behind them. And they're talking about which way are we going first? Going to Japan, those people that attacked us, that, that, that sunk the, the uh, battleships, uh, Repulse and Prince of Wales off of Singapore, captured Singapore, captured all Malaya, threatening Australia, captured the Philippines. No, actually, Germany is the most dangerous. That's going to get the priority. We'll hold in the Pacific. We'll go after Germany. Americans say, hey, shortest distance between two points, straight line. Let's go from London to Berlin. Let's get them. Brits say, not so fast. 
We're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. You think you are, but you're not. So we're going to work around the periphery of Nazi-held territory. They started off in North Africa. That's why they were in Morocco. And then the following July, Sicily, Italy, and worked their way up the Italian boot. Uh, Churchill had a name for it. He called it the soft underbelly of Europe. Later on, he admitted it was a tough old gut and not soft at all. But at that point, the Americans said, okay, we'll hold off for now. We'll, we'll go with the Mediterranean strategy, but we insist on building up strength in Great Britain because by next spring, 44, we're going across the channel. Um, the USA, uh, as I mentioned, wanted to go across, but they learned a lot. Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily, um, Licata, the 3rd Infantry Division, 1st Division, the Big Red One, going ashore at Jaila. They even had um, you know, little, little mules and burrows that they took in because they knew that Sicily was very mountainous. A couple of years ago, as Paul mentioned, we, we took a group of us from the Virginia Historical Society. We were on that beach at Jaila. We met a, a nice gentleman who walked up and introduced himself. I think he really introduced himself to Francesca, who was our local guide. Uh, but she shared him with us. He said as a youngster, he and his brothers helped GIs unload the landing craft and that they, as rewards, they gave him some K rations and some camels, which were highly prized among the six and seven year olds there in Sicily. Um, in any case, we followed their footsteps, the footsteps of people like George Smith Patton, um, as they conquered Sicily, then crossed the Straits of Messina into Italy in September and began their fight north. These pictures, Army medic taking care of uh, Private Roy Humphrey, Humphrey. And look at, the, look at the Sicilian women watching what's going on. Look at their faces. What's happened to their little village in Sicily? You've got Germans fighting on one end, the Americans coming in the other end, and they're stuck in the middle. And this is going to be the story for the next four years throughout Europe. These poor people who want nothing more than a return to peace, and now they're being bombarded on all sides, from the air, on land, got to be the most disruptive and thoroughly worrisome time in their lives. But there they are. And then what is another well-known photo, this one from the church in Cerna, Italy, the roof blown out, an American soldier standing there, thinking about what might have been. Now, while all this was going on, 1943, things are picking up now. People are making sacrifices all over. It's not just the soldiers in the mud. No, it's Rita Hayworth as well. <laughs> Look what she's saying here. She's giving up her bumpers for the war effort. Talk about a patriot. Um, <laughs> a lot, no, I'm sorry, Rita. Um, but a lot of these entertainers who were not in a position to fight themselves, they did their utmost. Bob Hope, Jack Benny. Here's a picture of Martha Ray entertaining troops overseas. They did so much to bring a little touch of home to American boys far, far away. And they were far away. In fact, in order to get to them, some real talented people like Glenn Miller, he enlisted his whole band. They went in the army. And they went, the Glenn Miller Band became an army band, and they went to Europe and played for soldiers. And sadly, of course, the world lost Glenn Miller in, a, in an airplane crash and was never recovered um, over the North Sea, the English Channel. While this was going on, our war is expanding. These pictures here from the exhibit, Marines firing their 75-millimeter howitzers point-blank at Japanese coconut log and concrete bunkers on Tarawa, Basho Island. Soldiers and tanks working together through the jungle. Lower right, interesting photo. These are Marines on Guam. If you read the press clippings, uh, Guam actually was, was captured in the fall of 1944, but this is later. These are black Marines. They're the first two battalions of African-American Marine volunteers sent to the Pacific. And their mission was, one, organize Guam for support for future operations, and two, clean it up. 
Uh, not in the photo, you can't really see it, but if you go to an exhibit, you might get a glimpse of his left boot as a Japanese sniper. A lot of the Japanese on Guam didn't, they didn't know that they were supposed to stop fighting. You know, peace had returned to Guam, so they just kept on shooting Americans whenever they had a chance. So these men are on patrol. They've, the, this Japanese just met his ancestors a few minutes ago when they walked by. So they're out there, they're doing their job and doing it very, very well. And of course in the Pacific, air power is key. If we didn't have the Naval Air Branch and the, what was then the Army Air Forces, we could never have spanned the globe, as it were, with the requirements. And so pictures in the exhibit of, of uh, B-25s attacking that destroyer, they did sink it, incidentally, that day. Here's um, uh, torpedo bombers uh, that are uh, uh, going after uh, Okinawa in 1944. And here, uh, General MacArthur, from the vantage point he had in a, a bomber, looking out the, uh, the gunner's side window of a bomber, he's uh, right over a, a jump where American paratroopers are going in. And speaking of paratroopers, this idea of vertical envelopment had really gained a lot of speed uh, within the United States. And despite some rough times in Sicily where um, there were some unfortunate instances of friendly fire, the airborne continued, and it's going to play a key role in June 44 when the Allies are ready to go to Operation Overlord. And they do cross the channel by air and by sea. And they go into the Normandy coast. And here we have photos from paratroopers getting ready to go out the door, exit the aircraft while in flight, hoping that they'll come down close to their planned drop zone, but not knowing where they're going to land. And that turns out to be both a blessing and a curse because American paratroopers were dropped all over the Norman countryside, so many in fact that the Germans thought that five parachute divisions had landed on them instead of two American divisions and, and one from the Brits. But it was difficult to coalesce their forces. If they had not been the rugged individualists that they were, it probably wouldn't have worked very well at all. But they said, okay, we've landed here, we'll start fighting from here, and they did. And then of course we get uh, uh, iconic photos like this one landing on Omaha Beach. That's the first division, the Big Red One going ashore. And here on Utah Beach, in the lower right, 4th Division soldiers, U.S. 4th Division, uh, taking a little uh, uh, break behind that seawall, waiting to be evacuated, the ships offshore. American wounded, in many cases, were being tended by Navy doctors on transport ships by noon of D-Day. 12,000 Allied casualties out of the 152,000 men that went ashore on the 6th of June. 152,000 men went ashore on the 6th of June, some by parachute, some by landing craft. 12,000 casualties. Now, it was tough getting ashore, but then they had to fight inland. They had to break out of this lodgment area, and they did. It took five or six weeks. Key to that effort was, oh, road junctions. One of them was a little place called San Lo surrounded by the Bocage region, where you had these very difficult um, hedgerows that had been built up over centuries around the fields, high rocky mounds in between the fields with, with nearly impenetrable uh, brambles and bushes growing out of the top, kept the French cows from wandering around loose, kept the Americans from moving quickly through the area, provided the Germans with wonderful defensive positions. So road junctions were key. Once again, the 29th Division, I keep talking about the blue and gray, they got the mission. 116th Infantry from Virginia, the 115th from Maryland, they worked together, they took San Lo. One of the battalion commanders, a young major now, it's supposed to be a lieutenant colonel, but the lieutenant colonel was wounded and gone, so the major took over. He's from Stanton, a fellow named Tom Howie. Ah, oh, he was so good. His troops loved him. They'd do anything for him. His commanders admired him, young man. And they gave him the mission to lead the attack on San Lo. He said, will do. It was last two words, will do, sir. He's killed just moments later. But he was so highly regarded by the assistant division commander, Brigadier General Dutch Cota, that when the 116th moved into San Lo the next day, Tom Howie went with them with an American flag draped over him on the hood of Cota's Jeep. Tom Howie went into San Lo. And this picture from the AP, 
shows his flag-draped form right here in front of the church of San Lo. And let me tell you, I was there two weeks ago. The citizens of San Lo still honor Place de la Major Tom Howie. And there are fresh flowers there every day. It's still there. They don't forget, not in Normandy. Well, once this took place, then the breakout occurred. George Smith Patton, Jr., with his third army, said, let me get at him. And they said, okay, go ahead, George. It's your time now. And he went roaring off into the Brittany Peninsula and then turned and they rushed toward, toward the, uh, the French-German border. While that's going on, some more people are coming back, some promises being kept. There he is, waiting ashore. Now, the story goes he did this photo op several times. <laughs> Look, there are lots of beaches in the Philippine island archipelago, but it was important that the Filipinos know he has returned. And for all those people in Santo Tomas prison camp near Manila and the American POWs throughout, it was important that they know he's coming. They're coming. They're coming for us. And it would be terribly, terribly important. As the U.S. forces captured island after island in the Pacific, they, of course, began to look for, always, for islands with an airfield. They found one in the Bonin Island group. Eh, it's out in the middle of the ocean. But it had an airfield. It was a volcanic cone. It's called Iwo Jima. The Americans said, we will have that airfield. So they turned to the Marines in the Central Pacific, said, that's your job, 5th Marine Division, go get it for us. And so in February 1945, they attacked Iwo Jima. Going in with them on the black volcanic ash beaches at, at Iwo Jima was Joe Rosenthal, an AP photographer. And he took pictures of Marines, young Marines, fighting their way ashore. He took pictures of dead Marines lying in the black sand. And then uh, a day or two after getting ashore, he heard word that Americans were actually fighting their way up to the top of this volcano, Mount Suribachi. And so he and some comrades said, I'm taking my cameras. We're going up there. That's going to be a great vantage point to get a shot of the island. And on the way up, he starts to hear cheering. And he looks. And sure enough, there's a little American flag going up on top of Mount Suribachi. And uh, a Marine combat photographer coming down here said, I got that picture. We put up a flag. He said, well. You might want to just turn around and go back. I already got the picture. Rosenthal said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on going. I want to I wanna get up there and look around. And he gets there about the same time as Marines bring a larger flag up. And they find an old piece of Japanese pipe. And they attach the larger flag to the pipe. They want a flag that the ships out in the, in, in the area around Iwo Jima can see. And Colonel Cooper, the Marine Battalion Commander, says, put it up. And Rosenthal heard that put it up. And his camera, speed graphic, wasn't ready to take a picture. He didn't work his viewfinder yet. He just turned around and snapped. Well, there it is. OK? The shot of the war. Pulitzer Prize winning photography that year, the same year that he took the picture. Okay? Six Marines, actually five Marines and a medical corpsman from the Navy put that up. Only three would live to see the actual photo. Three would be, would be killed within weeks after that, that particular instance. And of course, the killing went on around the world. This picture from the exhibit of an army chaplain saying last rites over men being buried at Henri Chapelle at the huge American cemetery there in Belgium is like in itself a tribute both to the chaplain's corps to the men from the Quartermaster Corps that had the very unenviable job of laying these, these soldiers to rest, and to, obviously to the men themselves. You can still visit, incidentally, that cemetery at Henri Chapelle. There's a picture of it as it exists today. American Battle Monuments Commission does a magnificent job of maintaining our cemeteries overseas, in Europe, in the Pacific, um, in the Mediterranean, magnificent, magnificent places. Um, the war was winding down in the, in, the, in the European theater, not quick enough for some. Here, this is uh, the bridge in Worms in Germany. He almost made it. He was within this, this poor soldier was within a few weeks of, of the German surrender. Americans crossed the Rhine in March at places like Remagen. 
and they're forging their way into Germany. <laughs> no, more, um, no more parades in Nuremberg for the time being. There's Nuremberg in 1945. You couldn't get a goose step going there. Too much rubble. There are American tanks moving through Nuremberg. 90% Nuremberg was turned into dust by the U.S. Army Air Forces. And then, of course, then there were the camps. Then there were the camps. General Eisenhower would write, we are constantly finding German camps where unspeakable conditions exist. I can state unequivocally that all written statements up to now do not paint the full horrors. And it's true. Awful. Buchenwald, Dachau, Matthausen, it went on and on. But finally, it came to an end. And once again, the Times-Dispatch told Richmond is all about that. The war is over in Europe. This is, a, to me, this says a lot. Look at these young cadets at John Marshall High School. Their heads bowed in prayer. You could do that in the public schools then. Bowed in prayer, thanking the Heavenly Father that the war was over. And I'm thinking to them, to myself, as I looked at those young faces on the front page of the Times-Dispatch, I wonder what thoughts are moving through their mind. Well, maybe the future holds something for me other than basic training. Might even be able to go on to college after graduation, as opposed to right into the service and then right into combat. So war is over in Europe. There's some marvelous pictures in the exhibit of people in Times Square. It's still going on in the Pacific, though. Getting closer to Japan, they need bases like Okinawa. Here's Paul Ibsen, 6th Marine Division, racing across open ground against machine gun fire. Great determination on his face. He's going to go. His sergeant said, come on, Ibsen, let's go. And he's moving out. They were getting ready for an assault on the Japanese home islands when, of course, on August the 6th, uh, the B-29 and Nola Gay dropped a single bomb on Hiroshima. 66,000 killed, 69,000 injured. Three days later, August 9th, the B-29 named Boxcar dropped a uh, bomb on Nagasaki. 39,000 Japanese killed, 25,000 wounded. And Emperor Hirohito said it's time to give up. Now, this sailor is celebrating in his own way. <laughs> I don't know who the nurse thought she was kissing. He may not have introduced himself properly beforehand, <laughs> but they were caught in the moment. Another moment occurred September 2nd in Tokyo Bay when General MacArthur and General Chester Nimitz took the surrender of the Japanese imperial government. And so finally, the shooting died away. Today, there's some monuments. Today, there's indelible memories. Today, if you visit Saint Laurent Cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach, you can stand in front of these crosses and stars of David. There are 9,387 of them. One of them bears the, uh, the inscription, Lieutenant, Jimmy Monteith, Virginia, Richmonder, Medal of Honor, 16th Infantry, 1st Division, Big Red One, D-Day, three trips through the German minefields to lead his men forward. He wouldn't quit until they finally put him down. If you have a chance to go, go. You'll be proud and you'll be, you'll be humbled by the experience. And if you don't have a chance to go, then I would urge you to do what is close to the next best thing, <laughs> and that is visit this exhibit right here at the Virginia Historical Society. It'll make you think. It'll make you proud. Thank you very much.
encourage anyone who's got a uh, question, comment, just to uh, let us see your hands, and Jennifer will be right there. And oh, Here we go. Yes, sir. Yes, I have a question. Uh, I agree with you. This was the greatest generation. They did the most for this country and everything. But I've never understood why it took so long to build a memorial in Washington, D.C. for these people. What a magnificent point. Why did it take so long to get our World War II Memorial in Washington built? Uh, I would be uh, the first to, uh, to say that I think we should have had one up within two, maybe three years at the most, as soon as the appropriations could be made out of Congress. And I would defer to any World War II veteran who has a personal point to make about that memorial, which is a magnificent memorial. I would only say that it seems to me, being a child of that generation, that so many men and women who served came back and were anxious to move on with their lives, take full advantage of the experience that they'd gained, and put it to work, that there probably was not as much attention given as there should have been to memorialize in their effort. And if it hadn't been for people like Senator Bob Dole and, and people working closely with him, Senator Dan Inouye, uh, who knows, we may still be in a position that we're in from World War I. We don't have a National World War I Memorial in Washington. There's one for the District of Columbia veterans of World War I, but not a National Memorial of World War I. Hmm? Very good question and a thought-provoking one. Yes, sir. I, I've always wondered why Hitler declared war on the United States right after Pearl Harbor. I didn't see what he had to gain. And even though, obviously, our hatred went to the, to the Japanese right then, it was still, there was a lot of isolationist in the United States. Why would Hitler take on the United States at that time? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful point to make because um, the Japanese had already made separate accommodations with, say, the Soviet Union. The Japanese, Hitler's uh, ally had already made a non-aggression pact with the Soviets, which stayed in effect throughout World War II. And the Soviets were able to move forces from their far east to their west to fight Hitler's army, two-thirds of which was always fighting on the Eastern Front, incidentally. So why did Hitler feel that he had to honor his relationship with the Japanese by declaring war on the United States once we had declared war on Japan? I wish I had a perfect answer into the workings of Adolf's mind. <laughs> it wasn't an issue that he put before the Reichstag. It was his decision. And it was a bad decision. I know that he, he held the United States, though, in contempt as far as a, a weak, um, fun-loving, jitterbugging group of people who made good automobiles, but not much more. He was wrong. We produced thousands and thousands of aircraft and tanks and destroyers. LSTs, Churchill would say, what is this LST, this LST thing? It seems the whole future of the free world depends on something called a damn LST. Yeah, we were good at it. Any other points? Yes, sir. I remember very well when the Japanese struck us at uh, Pearl Harbor, in those days, people generally thought, I don't know exactly how the information was brought about, but when the Japanese struck us at Pearl Harbor, they, before they did, or actually at the time that they did, they, their representatives were in Washington, D.C., making plans for peace. They spoke to the president, they spoke to the high authorities in the United States, in Washington, while the bombs were falling. Now, back to the business with Hitler, we thought for a time that they would combine with the Russians against us. 
that was a, a fear of the time, but also many, I don't know that whether this came from newspapers or what, but many here at home, before I got into the Pacific, uh, we thought that it was quite a planned thing between the Germans and the Japanese to conquer the world. Um, this was an actual plan because don't forget uh, Hitler wanted um, Franco in Spain to join him. Of course, you know all about this. But uh, that, maybe that's a partial answer. I think that's a perfect answer, and I thank you, sir, for sharing your personal experience with us because we can look back on this, and, you know, hindsight's pretty doggone focused. But the key points that this gentleman has made, we need never to forget. There was no perfect knowledge of what the future held. There was every potential for machinations and, and allegiances that would work great harm against the American people. Thank you, sir. I think we have time just for one more question, Paul. Yes. I'm, I wasn't old enough to go in the military during World War II, but I remember it well. And I remember A, stickers in the automobiles rationing gasoline. I remember food rationing stamps. I remember the total mobilization of this country during World War II. It's been said that the U.S. military is at war in Afghanistan and the U.S. military is at war in Iraq, but America is not. Can you account for that difference? I'm probably, as the father of a son who just got back from Iraq, I'm probably a little biased. Uh, I'm inclined to think that uh, he and, and his comrades uh, were, oh yeah, no question, but they were at war. I'm not so sure that we are. It's quite facile to say we're a nation at war. We hear that with some frequency coming from Washington and other spokespersons. Um, I'll leave it up to everyone here to make your own decision in that regard. But I do know uh, that it's hard for me to go through an airport like Atlanta, and I'm there frequently because, as you know, even if you're dying and going to hell, you have to change planes in Atlanta. <laughs> it's, it's awfully hard for me to walk past one of those young women with her duffel bag on her back without reaching over and patting that duffel bag and saying, hey, thank you for your service. If we'll do that, I think we'd, we've taken a step toward making them Young men and women understand we care. Thank you very much.